Glad you guys are here this morning. For those of you who don't know, my name's Sean. I am one of the pastors here. And if you're joining us online this morning, we're glad that you're joining us. We are going to be in Matthew 21. So if you have a Bible with you um, in paper or on your phone, which I left somewhere, so if someone wants a new iPhone uh, and you find it, uh, there it is. Um, uh, on, a, on a tablet or phone or something, Matthew 21 is where we're going to be today. While you're turning there, I got a quick little update reminder information I want to give to you, and, and that is this, is um, two weeks ago, on pretty short notice, we made this announcement that uh, we had this awesome opportunity to raise some extra funds to do some work on a building that's over on this side of our property um, that we have called Heritage Hall before, uh, just called the modular buildings or the hallway of terrifying horror, whichever you'd prefer. And so um, to do some work there and, and to have an opportunity that in somewhere between six and nine years to have absolutely zero facility costs, right? Which is an incredible thing because it's going to save us millions of dollars over the life of the loan that we have left for this church. Now, I hope that you got more of those details because you either got an email this week. If you didn't get an email from us, it means that you've never filled out anything um, and you've never texted Monmouth. You've never done anything, but you should have gotten an email. If you didn't check your junk mail, because that's where it ends up for a lot of you. I'm not taking it personally. Um, or if you didn't already, you should be getting a letter in the mail soon that will explain a lot of the details that are going on. But one that I wanted to um, focus on this week is that you'll hear us throw out two different numbers of what we're trying to do. And the first one is just as I said, that we have to raise $30,000 to do some improvements on the building to bring some tenants in, right? And then sometimes you'll see a number that says $120,000. Now, the, the deal is, is that legally, uh, you'll get bored if I get into the weeds, but we want to do things above board and as ethically as possible. And so to abide by IRS regulations, um, we have to do it in what's called a one fund campaign, which means that the $120,000 accounts for all of our expenses for November and December, our normal budgeted expenses, and $30,000. Now, if you want to talk to me why that is an IRS code, we can talk about that later, but I'm sure that's not why you showed up here. So I just want you to know that the, we have to raise $30,000 more than we normally do, which accounts to $120,000 in a two-month period. So that's, that's the two things that are going on there. And I just encourage you to continue to pray and talk with your family about what kind of role and place you're going to play in that. Because um, $30,000 to me sounds like a lot of money. Um, I don't think I've ever had a bank account that had $30,000. I, I can tell you positively, I have never had a bank account that had $30,000 in it. $30,000 is a lot of money, um, but, and especially in a really short period. Um, but we believe that God's put some things together and, uh, and just inviting you to be a part of that. So Matthew 21 is where we're going to be. Um, Jesus, is, uh, Jesus is a genius. Uh, in fact... There's a, a book that recently came out by a guy named Erwin McManus, and he's a pastor in Southern California, and that's just the title of the book, is The Genius of Jesus. Um, but, but there's something so beautiful and even mysterious about the words that Jesus says that still 2,000 years later, in a completely foreign language, we are still drawn back to the words of Jesus. That there are people all over the world, every single day, different cultures, different languages, um, very distant from the original moment that Jesus spoke, who were drawn over and over and over again to this man Jesus and the words he had to say. There, there's something 
profoundly mysterious and weighty at the fact that Jesus can utter words 2,000 years ago, thousands of miles away from here, in a culture that would seem so foreign to us, it would be almost, almost alien and unfamiliar, that he could utter those words then and pierce right into the soul of people and into a culture and critique and correct a culture. And we can sit here in Monmouth, Oregon, 2,000 years later and read the words of Jesus and he can cut into our soul and he can cut into our culture. So he gives them these stories to correct and to critique their way, but I think today Jesus has some really weighty things to critique and correct in us as well. So he tells them these stories. We call them parables. The first one is this. You're going to find it in Matthew um, 21, verse 28. He tells him this story about a man who has a vineyard, and he's got two sons. And he tells both the sons, go work out in the vineyard, right? And you'll see it if you're, if you're looking. Verse 22, the first son, um, oh, sorry, verse 29, says this, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it, and he went. And then the second son says to him, well, I'll go. But then he does it. Now look at what Jesus asked the crowd. He says this, verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father. Which of the two did the will of his father? The one who said he would go, said the right things, honored his father with the right words, because in an honor-shame culture, um, honoring your parents was a really weighty, significant thing. He says the right words in front of his dad, but when he leaves, he does not do the words that he says. Or the one who dishonors his father, but in the end does what the father desires. You see, um, th there are a lot of great myths in every culture, and, and one of them is this. Uh, one of the great myths of our culture is that uh, what you say matters. It, it, that what you say matters. Here, here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Okay? Jesus is not celebrating that the brother said I'm not going to go, but then went. And he's not celebrating that. But what he's exposing is how empty our words can be. That, that, that if our words do not change our walk, that they're worthless. You can say whatever you want, but if the words you proclaim do not change the way you walk through this world, they're absolutely worthless. Living in the shadow of the enlightenment, we have believed this myth that what matters most is the words we say, the creeds we affirm, the doctrines we preach. But here's the deal, here's the deal. Um, in the end, um, we're all going to get to heaven and we're going to affirm doctrines that are absolutely wrong. Did you know that? You're going to get in front of Jesus and, and Jesus is going to look at you and go, you thought, you, you preached that. That our words, that, that the gospel is not a message that's primarily concerned with right words as if by saying the right words you could indebt God. If you could just say, oh, I'll go to the vineyard. If you could just say the right words and make God do something, that's not the Christian faith. That's witchcraft. That if our words do not change the way that we walk... They're worthless. This is, in fact, one of the great criticisms of the prophets throughout the Old Testament. 
over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Um, there's this one story, and, and I'm going to paraphrase it for you, but God's speaking through a prophet, and, and he says this. Um, he, he says to his people who are, who are worshiping and singing and celebrating his goodness, he says this. He says, please stop singing. Your voices annoy me. This is Sean's translation, but look it up. It's close. I hate, listen listen what God says to his people. I hate your sacrifices. I despise your praise. You know why? Because they said all the right words. Yeah, we'll go to the vineyard. We'll do it. We'll, We'll follow you. But he says, your hearts are far from me. Your hearts are chasing after other idols. Uh, let me show it to you the, the thinness of our words in, in this, okay? And, and this, is, this is a trick question. There's going to be a spot in the end where, um, so I'm just going to give you a heads up, but I'm going to ask you to, to be honest, okay? Here we go. You ready? Um, how many of you, how many of you believe God is good? Raise your hand or say yes or right, okay? Okay, we're going to see how many people went to church camp. You ready? Here we go. God is good and all the time. Yeah, okay, okay, God is good. Firm that, believe that, yeah, God is good, okay. Let me ask you another question. Is, is God able? Is, is, he, is he ultimately powerful? Is he sovereign over all of creation? Does everything exist in the palm of, that he holds everything together by his power and his might? Is, is he able, yes? If God is good, and able in all things, why do you worry? See, our words only carry as much weight as they are a part of transforming the way that we walk over and over and over again. God, God tells his people, God tells the religious leaders I don't care what you proclaim. I don't care the words you say if your heart is far from me. We, we have been tempted with this lie to believe that if we just affirm the right truths, that that will be sufficient. That if we just sing, the, if we just sing songs often, if we just say the right things about who Jesus is and his role in our life, if we, if we just post the right things on Facebook and, and we, we have the right bumper stickers and we, we hang the right thing art in our, in our living room, in our kitchen, and we uh, confess the right things, that that is sufficient. But words that don't change your walk are worthless. They're no more valuable than the son that says to his father, I'll go to the field and never leaves. Jesus tells another parable. He tells this parable about a vineyard owner, another vineyard owner. And uh, he's worked this vineyard and he's got it all ready and, and he rents the vineyard out. It's, it's the story right after. It starts in verse 33 if you're following along. He rents the vineyard out and uh, um, they, they begin to work the vineyard. The workers begin to work the vineyard and the time comes for him to collect the rent. And so he uh, sends a servant to go collect the rent for the vineyard that he owns, that they're working his vineyard. It's been profitable. It's gone well. So he sends them and and we know because the gospel writers, several gospel writers tell us the story that he sends them and something happens in the people working the field. 
And something happens to the people working the vineyard, and, and their minds shift, and they forget who owns that vineyard. And then they begin to believe, they, they begin to get tempted to believe, well, I mean, we're the ones out here working. We're the ones out here sweating in the heat of the day. We're the ones out here six days a week. We're the ones out here missing summer vacation. We're the ones out here working through Labor Day weekend. We're the ones out here giving and sacrificing our literal blood, sweat, and tears into this vineyard. We're the ones who made these grapes and made this wine. And so when the servant shows up and he demands the rent due for using the, the, the vineyard owner's vineyard, they take him and they beat him and they kill him. And so the vineyard owner sends another servant. <laughs> Wouldn't you have liked to be that second servant? You'd probably go packing, right? Sends another servant. And they come and they do the same thing. They beat him and then they kill him. And he does that over and over and over and over again. And then eventually the vineyard owner says this. He says, well, I will send my son because at least my son, they will have respect and they will, they will treat him with dignity. And so he sends his son and they do the exact same thing to the son. You see, one of the greatest, most insidious lies in our soul, in our culture, and in our churches, in our faith, is that you've earned and deserve anything. Look at, look at how Jesus starts the parable. Matthew um, uh, 21, verse 33. Look at what it says. Look at this. Listen to another parable, Jesus says. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. In the Greek, there are eight verbs in that, in that first verse. Six of them are, not all of them are translated here, so you only see five, but six of them are emphasizing the work that the vineyard owner did to prepare the vineyard. Here's what, how Jesus is starting the story. God did it all. The, 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 the workers out in the vineyard, they began to believe the lie that it was because of their hard work, but Jesus starts the parable reminding us that it's the vineyard owner who planted the vines, who made the press, who made the wall, who prepared everything. And to think that they had deserved anything, even especially ownership of the vineyard, which is basically what they're claiming, is absurd. They are only tenants managing, stewarding the vineyard that the vineyard owner owns. But so often we are in such subtle and excessively arrogant ways led to believe that what we have, whether your abilities, your stuff, your time, your accomplishments, is because you deserve it. Now here's the truth, okay? Yes, you worked hard, right? To, 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 to get the things that you, you probably had sleepless nights, you probably sacrificed, and there were moments where you had to miss out on other things that other people got, and it got you to a place in your job, in your career, with relationships, in your life, to where there are things where you feel like, I'm old, I'm the one who was out there in the heat of the day working the vineyard. I'm the one who was out there in the winter cleaning all the branches. I'm the one who was out there doing the hard work. But here, let me ask you this question. What, what did you do? Just, just help me with this. 
whatever you have accomplished, whatever you've received, whatever you have, whatever you call your own, um, how, how was it that like you were in your mother's womb and you disciplined yourself, you put in the hard work to make sure that your brain formed in a way to understand complex and even um, uh, theoretical ideas that have allowed you to accomplish the things that you've accomplished. How was it? How was it? How was it that you made sure that you were born to the mother and father that you were born to, so that you were born in a location and a time that almost every single major um, uh, 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 fatal childhood disease had been eradicated, so that birth was almost a guarantee that you made it to adulthood? How, how was it? How was it that you made sure that you were born here and now? There's a, um, a pastor's joke. It's a dumb joke, but I'm going to tell it to you anyways. Just like, let's all breathe and know that I'm not trying to be funny and telling you this joke, okay? So, it goes like this. There's some scientists, and uh, the world has so advanced to a way where uh, we can do everything. The moment that comes, and the last great accomplishment is conquered. They can give life to things, they can take inanimate things and scientists figured out a way where they can make life come to it. Think of Frankenstein without all the horror, right? They can make life. So the scientists, aware of the monumentally insignificant task they've just accomplished, you know, they, they call God and they say, hey, um, God, like, could we have a meeting? We want to share with you what we've, we've done. And God's like, that's great. Let's, let's get together. And so they get together and the scientists say, you know, you know God, um, we know that for centuries and centuries and centuries and millennia, like you've held this thing together. And there were some really ugly seasons for humanity. And so like we appreciate that you bore with our stupidity and, 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 and we know that like you've held it, you created all this and you held it all together and we're so grateful for it. But, but you know, we, we, we just crossed the last, thre last threshold and we can now make life. And so we just wanted you to know like it's a hard being God, like it's probably time for you to retire. And like, you can, you can have a, like a nice little retirement. And, and God says to the scientist, he says, um, man, that's awesome. Like, that's amazing. Like, I made you people, and you figured this out. Like, that's amazing. Um, but, you know, before I leave, where I'm going is really far away, and I don't have a real good cell reception because I have T-Mobile. And so before I leave, I just want to do a little test here, okay? So here, here's the test is um, how about you make something, you make life, and I'll make life, and then we'll just kind of like make sure that they look the same. Like just make sure that like when you beta tested everything, like I'm not going to come back in 10 years. You got taken over by this alien form of weird creature that just like, okay, let's just make sure that. And the scientist's like, yeah, that's great. We'd love to show you. That's amazing. Let's, let's do this. And so God says, okay, why don't you guys go first and kind of get figured out, do whatever you need to do. And the scientist goes, um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So all we need is um, we just need a handful of dirt. And God goes, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait a second. You make your own dirt. Did you get it? What arrogance we walk with when we think that anything we've accomplished or received is because of how impressive we are. We sang a song, we didn't plan this, but we sang a song just a little while ago that says, that says, uh, I'm not going to remember the words perfectly, but it says, um, your breath is in our lungs. 
that he is the one who breathes life into us. And to walk with any sort of arrogance that we deserve or own or are owed anything is a kind of arrogance that is hard to fathom from the one who breathes the very breath of life into us. There's kind of a cool little um, old factoid about the Hebrew languages. Um, God is speaking with his people, and he's going to reveal to them his name, his personal name. And uh, he, he tells them in one of the Ten Commandments, he says, not take his name in vain. And so he tells them the, the name, and uh, you may have heard it as said as Yahweh, and I can just assure you, we can be perfectly guaranteed 100%. That's not how you pronounce it. Um, how you pronounce it, we're not entirely sure, but we know that that's not how it was pronounced, right? But because they were so terrified of saying God's name in vain, often they would either give him another name or they would spell it. And here's the really cool thing. When you spell the name of God, it's four, four consonants. When you spell the name of God, it sounds like you're breathing. And here's what some rabbis had noticed. It is that even when we spell the very name of God, it is to remind us that the breath we breathe is his. Isn't that awesome? So whether we walk with a kind of arrogance that we think that we earned it, that we deserved it, that we're killing it, either in life or in our walk with Jesus, I disciplined myself, I did it. Look at how impressive I am. It is his very breath that allows us to utter such arrogance. Or whether... It is that we just think if we just say the right things, if we mark the right things on the census, if we, if we, if we classify ourselves in the right way and recite the right prayers and encanters um, and, and say all the right things, that somehow that will be sufficient. But Jesus doesn't just end there. He actually tells us another parable in Matthew 22. Because see, neither of those things are the gospel that you can earn your salvation, that you deserve it, that you can manipulate God into it. Jesus gives us a different image. He not only critiques, but he corrects. Because you see, when you're critiquing something, you, kinda, you tear something down. When you correct, it's an invitation to something new. And so Jesus is critiquing myths in their culture and in ours, but he, he's correcting, he's inviting us to something new. And that invitation, he paints this picture this way. It's beautiful, it's awesome. He paints this picture about a wedding. Now, now, here's the thing. There's some things you need to know about ancient Near Eastern culture. Weddings were crazy. Like, they were crazy. They would plan, they would take months to plan, and not just because it was hard to find a good venue and a good photographer and a good videographer. If you need one, Seth Halligan's available. He'll kill it for your wedding, okay? Um, Seth, I expect a 10% commission, okay? Um, but they would, they would have these huge parties, and they would celebrate in a way that is, like, unfathomable. Poor people. Okay? Poor people would celebrate for days and sometimes weeks. The wealthy, there's historical accounts of wealthy kings celebrating for years. Isn't that nuts? Like, okay, one of the greatest celebrations all year, can we all agree? Greatest celebration all year is Super Bowl Sunday. 
Can you fathom what you do on Monday to keep celebrating? Like, I can't, I wake up on Monday just exhausted. I'm, I'm starting a petition. I'm going to run for president. And my only platform is going to be that Monday after Super Bowl is a national holiday. Because it should just, we should all get a chance to rest and recollect ourselves. But how is it? They would celebrate for days, weeks, months, or years. And this is the wedding the king's about to throw. And see, here's the thing. When people would travel from great distances and they would walk from great distances to come to celebrate for months and sometimes years, um, it, it, there was a lot that had to go into it. So it would take a long time to prep. And so, so here, here's a cool thing. See, see, listen and hear the imagery that Jesus talks about elsewhere. You know what they would do? They'd build houses for them. You, because they had to have somewhere to stay. There wasn't like enough hotel, Motel 8s for them to all stay in. They'd build houses on their property for all these people coming from afar to come celebrate and stay at their houses. Remember what Jesus says when he says, when he leaves? I'm going to build a house for you. And this great wedding's gonna happen. And, and they would spend years preparing, getting food and getting all the wine. That's the great atrocity of, of, of what occurs when Jesus turns water into wine is that they spent years preparing for this moment and they were still unprepared. And so they're preparing all the food. And, and there are some cultures and there were some kings that they would even say that because they traveled from such a great distance and it was such a big deal, that the, the king would provide them with the right clothes. That they, would, that they would dress all the people they'd invited with just their clothes. <laughs> Can you imagine? It's bad enough to have to wear a maid of honor dress, not something I'm familiar with, but it's bad enough. That's what I hear. Can you imagine everybody who comes to the wedding having to wear the same dress, right? This is what would happen. They'd all be dressed by the king, invited to celebrate and rejoice, to share in his joy. Paul picks up on this later and you remember what he says? He says that we've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. See, the gospel, the invitation of the gospel is to come to the king's home, to, to live in his house, to sit at his table, to eat his food, to be dressed in his clothes, in the clothes of righteousness at his cost. Look at what Jesus says about who's invited. First, the, the servants go and they try and invite all the right people. And, and we know from other gospel writers, you know, they all, they're busy. They got things going on. But look, look, at, look at verse 10. It says this. Those slaves went out in the streets and gathered together all they found, both the evil and the good. That's good news. That the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the people in the tabernacles that the busted and the broken full of shame and guilt and those people who look like they had it all together sitting in church pews. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. You see, this is the invitation of the gospel. Not that by right words you've earned or convinced God that you're deserving. Not by your hard work that you've indebted God that he owes you anything, but you're invited to his great celebration, to sit at his table, to eat his food, dressed in his clothes of righteousness, to come and to celebrate and rejoice for all eternity. So the question is today, like where is it in your life, subtly, deep in your soul, that you've convinced yourself that you're good because you vote the right way, 
because you mark the right title of religious affiliation, because you sing the right songs or proclaim the right doctrines? Where is it so subtly in your soul that you're convinced that God owes you, that you have a place in heaven because of all the good things you've done? Because it is his very breath that has animated you and given you life. But instead, the gospel is this invitation to come to his wedding, to his celebration, to eat at his table, to wear his clothes for all eternity at his cost. So may you come. May we come. May we be a people busted and broken, full of wickedness, shame, heartache, and fear, who rejoice because of his goodness.